Hi, this is Dr. Timothy Bartell for the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine School. We are two episodes in to our centenary remembrance of T.S. Eliot's Proof Rock and Other Observations, which was published in 1917. Our last two podcasts, we focused on the first poem, which was the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And then we talked a little bit about Eliot's poem toward the middle of the collection, Preludes, one of my favorite lyric sequences of Eliot. I want to talk about the last poem in the collection. And in fact, when we think about this collection, Prufrock and Other Observations, usually the focus is put on Prufrock. But it's interesting to note that in fact, Observations is an important word in the title that was actually used by Eliot when he published some of these shorter poems toward the end of the collection. The poem we're going to talk about today, La Filia Chez Pionge, which I'm sure I'm butchering the pronunciation of that. It's French for something like the little girl who weeps or the crying little child, something like that. This was published originally in Poetry Magazine uh, in a lyric sequence that Eliot titled Observations, and then this little sequence or this little poem was called La Filia Chez Pionge. So observations is an interesting word here. One of the big movements that's taking place in the teens when Eliot is first starting to publish and get notoriety is a movement called imagism. Imagism was uh, started by Ezra Pound, Hilda Doolittle, and a few other uh, American and British poets in the British poetry scene. And imagism took as its modus operandi, you might say, not expression of the feelings of the human heart or even articulation of some intellectual position, observation really was the name of the game for the imagists. They wanted to give concrete descriptions of real life from eyewitness physical observation. So it's interesting that as the imagists are championing in the mid-teens this poetry of the concrete image, Eliot publishes his first book and calls his poems observations. Eliot didn't know Pound when Pound first articulated these early ideas about imagism, but Pound sort of discovered Eliot and saw in him someone who had already kind of understood and invented imagism on his own. And he has some comments that uh, Eliot invented imagism and became an imagist before he even knew it existed. This may have been Pound trying to associate himself with Eliot, perhaps artificially, but Pound ended up becoming an important editor of Eliot's work. So I suppose it paid off. La Filia Chez Pionge is a poem of 24 lines, and it's one of the more light and lovely of the poems in this collection. As we saw in both Proofrock and in Preludes, Eliot can get pretty dark and sometimes a little grotesque. He talks about a patient etherized upon a table as his main simile for what the evening looks like as it's spread out across the sky at the beginning of Prufrock, very famously. It's a little gross. It's a little clinical. And back in Preludes, we have uh, this description of an infinitely gentle, infinitely suffering thing. There's this sense of grotesqueness that's a little bit pitiable off and on in his imagery. Le Filia Chez Pionge is less grotesque. It's less 
disturbing, but it's it's mournful and lovely, I think, in its descriptions. Let me read it to you. La filia chepionge, au quam te memorem virgo. Stand on the highest pavement of the stair, lean on a garden urn, weave, weave the sunlight in your hair, clasp your flowers to you with a pained surprise, fling them to the ground and turn with a fugitive resentment in your eyes, but weave, weave the sunlight in your hair. So I would have had him leave, so I would have had her stand and grieve, so he would have left, as the soul leaves the body torn and bruised, as the mind deserts the body it has used, I should find some way incomparably light and deft, some way we both should understand, simple and faithless as a smile and shake of the hand. She turned away, but with the autumn weather compelled my imagination many days, many days and many hours, her hair over her arms and her arms full of flowers. And I wonder how they should have been together. I should have lost a gesture and a pose. Sometimes these cogitations still amaze the troubled midnight and the noon's repose. Like sections of Proofrock. This is a very rhymey poem. And also like Proofrock, there's regular meter in it, but line lengths vary quite a bit. Let's talk about this first stanza. It actually opens just before the first stanza with a quotation in Latin, O quam te memorem virgo. This is from the Aeneid. In book one, Aeneas has shipwrecked upon the shore of Carthage, and in the woods, Aeneas is sort of searching for what kind of land they're in, he's not sure, and his mother, Venus, shows up disguised as a maiden. And he says, O quam te memorum virgo, or oh, what word should I call you by or know you by, virgin or maiden. So this is an interesting opening. We have a association with Virgil. We also have an association with one person, a man, asking a maiden what he should call her. This is going to play into the theme a little subtly, but I think it's quite clever on Eliot's part. So this first stanza, which is seven lines, goes, stand on the highest pavement of the stair, lean on a garden urn, weave, weave the sunlight in your hair, clasp your flowers to you with a pained surprise, fling them to the ground and turn with a fugitive resentment in your eyes, but weave, weave sunlight in your hair. Now, at least one critic has pointed out that this is a very bold opening stanza when it comes to the mood of the verbs that are being used. The mood is imperative throughout this whole stanza. We have stand, lean, weave, weave, clasp, fling, and then finally weave, weave again as the verbs. These are commands, but they also seem subtly to be descriptions of what a person is doing. There is an observation of a person it seems to be a woman in this opening, but it's an observation of what she's doing that's put as if someone is telling her to do that. It's a little odd. Stand on the highest pavement of the stair, lean on a garden urn, 
weave, weave the sunlight in your hair. Those are the first three lines. Stand on the highest pavement of the stair is pretty much iambic pentameter. Lean on a garden urn is, well, it's, it's another one of these weird lines that both starts and ends with a stressed syllable and it has alternating stressed and unstressed syllables in the middle of it. Is the stress on lean or on on, I think is an interesting question. Lean on a garden urn. Maybe lean on is a spondy. These are the questions that sometimes can get me very myopically focused on a line. It's almost like what Elliot is doing here is he's observing not just what someone is doing, and he's not just commanding someone to do something. It's almost like he's giving a prescription for a particular way to do a thing. If you want to be like this person is being or accomplish what this person is accomplishing, you should stand on the highest pavement of the stair. You should lean on a garden urn. You should, and then this gets a little magical, weave, weave the sunlight in your hair. And the fact that he says weave two times here calls us to slow down whenever you have the same word twice in a line, regardless of the meter of the line. You slow down and all of a sudden you remember that word. Repetition always aids in memory. And poetry can do this very powerfully and beautifully. Weave, weave the sunlight in your hair. Clasp your flowers to you with a pained surprise. Pained is an interesting word here. We haven't really got a description of the feelings of who's being described here until we get pained surprise. All of a sudden, this isn't just a lovely or lyrical image of a woman standing, leaning, weaving. There's, there's something sad going on here. Or at least he's saying to do something as if one was sad. Fling them to the ground and turn with a fugitive resentment in your eyes, but weave, weave the sunlight in your hair. If we remember the title of this poem, The Girl Who Weeps, we're starting to get a picture that this is a woman who has just had perhaps a disappointment. And as we'll see as it keeps going on, it's a disappointment in love. And it's giving almost guidelines for how to react to disappointment in love. Clasp flowers to you, fling them to the ground, turn with a fugitive resentment in your eyes. It's almost like it's a film director, or a play director, who's uh, telling his lead actress how to act like a spurned lover. It's, it's kind of wonderful. And the fact that Eliot himself would go on to write uh, several very famous plays, I'm getting the sense that there's this sort of directorial sense here, this directorial tone here. But it's interesting that the last line of this stanza goes back to the magical image of weaving the sunlight in your hair. So this isn't a woman who's just becoming angry and bitter. It's a woman who's being angry and doing a drastic gesture. If a woman throws flowers on the ground, were put in mind that perhaps a lover had given her flowers and throwing flowers on a ground or a rejection of a lover's gift, or perhaps a reaction to the lover himself rejecting her. But she remains magical and lyrically beautiful with this weave, weave the sunlight in your hair. It's almost a little unfair of this director to say, you need to stay magically beautiful and become angry and show disdain. What's going on here? What's Elliot doing? Well, let's keep reading. So I would have had him leave. So I would have had her stand and grieve. So he would have left 
as the soul leaves the body torn and bruised, as the mind deserts the body it has used, I should find some way incomparably light and deft, some way we both should understand, simple and faithless as a smile and shake of the hand. The lines in this stanza are interesting. There's two lines that are eight to 10 syllables long. So I would have had him leave. So I would have had her stand and grieve. That's actually seven and then nine. And we have this alternating stressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, beginning with a stress, ending with a stress. And also rhyming. Seven, the seven syllable line rhymes with the next nine syllable line. But then we get this short line, so he would have left five syllables, once again, starting with a stress and ending with a stress. It's almost like Eliot really likes that pattern, really likes these odd numbers of syllables. So he would have left. And then we have two more longer lines, as the soul leaves the body torn and bruised, as the mind deserts the body it has used, I should find some way incomparably light and depth. So we have two relatively long lines, a short line, two relatively long lines, an even shorter line, I should find is three syllables. Some way incomparably light and deft. We're back to an approximation of pentameter. Some way we both should understand. And then the last line, which kind of breaks this pattern of two long lines, one short line, two long lines, one short line, we have two long lines, and then an even longer line, simple and faithless as a smile and shake of the hand. That's, depending on how you stress smile as one syllable or two syllables, that's 13 or 14 syllables. Very long line. It's almost like that could have been broken into a line of tetrameter or pentameter and then a three or four syllable line underneath it, but he put them all together. So we almost rushed through that. It's a paradox of poetry, I think that short lines make us slow down. And sometimes if a line is long enough, we kind of speed up to get all the way through it. What's cool about narrative going on in this second stanza is that in the first stanza, we just had descriptions of what a woman would do. Now we have this directorial voice talking about both what the woman should do and what the man should do. I would have him leave. Okay, so we were right to surmise that there's this man is somehow rejecting or leaving this woman, and this woman is reacting to it. So I would have had her stand and grieve. Ah, having her stand and grieve, that's almost a summary of this stand, lean, weave, clasp, fling, weave, weave that we get in the first stanza. So he would have left as the soul leaves the body torn and bruised. Oh my goodness. This gets a little metaphysical here. We have a man leaving a woman who grieves over it. And he compares that to a soul leaving a body. What happens when a soul leaves a body? It dies. What happens when this man is leaving this woman? There's a death taking place. Death, certainly at least metaphorically, of the relationship. It's also interesting and perhaps telling, there's a lot of writing on Eliot's views of men and women and relationships. Eliot had a very troubled relationship with his first wife who had lots of mental health issues. And Eliot himself admitted that he didn't quite understand human romance and marriage in ways that other people did. And I think he really struggled with understanding himself when it came to things like romance and sexuality. 
And you can see that in his poetry. Here he's kind of giving us, here's a miserable breakup, which is interesting because in the first poem in this collection, the love song of Geoffrey Prufrock, it starts with, let us go then you and I. We have two lovers coming together. Now, it ends quite sadly, right? The we ends up drowning at the end of Prufrock. And in the middle of Prufrock, there's a lot of worry that the women won't be interested in him or won't like what he has to say. But Prufrock, on the whole, is about someone who's trying to make human connection, maybe even make romantic connection. It's a love song after all. La Filia Chez Pionge is the breakup poem. It's this description of the breaking apart. Let us go then, you and I, it begins, but so I would have had him leave is the end of Prufrock and other observations. Perhaps a bolder soul than I could look at this whole collection as perhaps a narrative about coming together and breaking up. Is there a narrative throughout all of Prufrock and other observations? Go read it, think about it. It's one of the things I love to do with collections of poetry. And often we, we approach poetry uh, as these distinct units of it's just one poem after another in a collection and they're not really related to each other. But poets are very intentional with how they organize poetry. Is there narrative or maybe even development of theme, even if it's not a clear narrative, over the course of the collections of great poets? I think there certainly is. And I think we would be better readers of poetry if we looked for those narrative developments or thematic developments or both. Let's see where these, where these lovers end up by the end of the poem. She turned away, but with the autumn weather compelled my imagination many days, many days and many hours, her hair over her arms and her arms full of flowers. And I wonder how they should have been together I should have lost a gesture and a pose. Sometimes these cogitations still amaze the troubled midnight and the noon's repose. I, I admit to just loving these last lines, especially the I should have lost a gesture and a pose. Sometimes these cogitations still amaze the troubled midnight and the noon's repose. It becomes perfect iambic pentameter. He's been doing these weird partial lines of iambic pentameter doing odd numbers of syllables. So we start and end with a stressed syllable and have alternating in the middle. But finally, we have in these last few lines just straight pentameter that rhymes. This, I should have lost a gesture and a pose, the troubled midnight and the noon's repose. It rhymes, it's perfect iambic pentameter. It's like he's given up and just given us some Shakespeare, but a 20th century voice with Shakespeare's lines, or, or if you prefer the lines of someone like Pope or, or Wheatley. And I just love it because it's still so Eliot. I think it's interesting. He has this description. She turned away, but with the autumn weather compelled my imagination many days. This is something that the Romantics actually did a lot in their poetry, say late 1700s through mid 1800s. They would describe a scene and then in their last stanza or two, they would say how it made them feel and what it made them conclude about humanity and their own selves. And in the modern era, I think that was often seen as like, oh, that that's a little trite, right? I saw the daffodils blowing on the hillside in the beautiful breeze. And now that I'm not there, I think of them and my heart dances with them. Very famous uh, Wordsworth poem. Uh, it's easy to say, oh, Wordsworth, how silly and sentimental and kind of treat that giving us a moral of the story or how it affected me later as trite. But Eliot shows that it can be used in a way that's not necessarily tidy, but shows that 
seeing something like a breakup or even maybe being involved in a breakup, maybe seeing your friends break up. Maybe some have even said, this is the guy in the relationship who does leave the girl, thinking back on it and kind of thinking of himself in the third person. I'm not sure I'll I'll let readers decide what they think is most clear. I think that the directorial voice, this voice of it's a narrator who's watching a breakup, who seems to involve himself in who are these people and what are they doing? And oh, she's really sad. And yeah, yeah, throw those flowers down. He deserves it. It's almost like you're watching a TV show and really invested in the characters. But he admits to us at the end, she turned away but compelled my imagination many days. He keeps thinking about this woman who turns away from this man who leaves her. And then he, he repeats many days and many hours, her hair over her arms, her arms full of flowers. Wait, her arms are still full of flowers. Did she pick them up again or is he remembering her right before she threw them down? The narrative's a little interesting here. And I wonder how they should have been together. Now he's projecting back before he left, what were they like together? Who were these people? And that's why I think that this is an observer seeing a scene play out and saying, yeah, that's what she should do. He seems like a bad guy. But now he's wondering, but what was it like before? Poetry can do this. It can jump around in time. It can observe, give us an observation. And then, and this is just a beautiful movement of mind in Eliot, he then observes his own observation of it. He observes his own wondering about it and gives it to us. And finally, he has, I should have lost a gesture and a pose. That sounds like the director again. If they were together, I wouldn't have been able to see this cool gesture she does, this pose leaning on the garden urn. And then he just clinches it with, Sometimes these cogitations still amaze the troubled midnight and the noon's repose. I love that word amaze. It's one of those words that seems so fitting, but is surprising. His thinking amazes. Well, amazes him, amazes his days. Grammatically speaking, it's amazing the midnight and the noon's repose. It's like these cogitations come upon him. It's not too different than Wordsworth and the daffodils. But the romantics, Wordsworth as one of the chief romantics, he ponders the beauty of the natural world. Eliot in 1917 is stuck after all these love songs and observations. He's stuck, still amazed at this breaking down of relationship. Does this have implications for what the world is going through? 1917. This is World War I. This is a, a giant breakdown of the brotherhood and, and unity of Europe. There's a lot more to say here. This is a poem that I think once again shows us that Eliot has a great ear for rhythm and meter, but is always intentionally chopping lines off at unexpected places, creating patterns and then breaking them, but often retaining rhyme, and all the while observing himself observing. It's what maybe makes Eliot greater than the imagists, that he will give us an observation and then jump up a level and talk about what the worth of observing those things are and what the effect of them is upon the human soul. And this question of death, the leaving of the soul from the body torn and bruised, it's interesting that the soul is the thing that left the body torn and bruised. The soul has effect upon the body. Eliot is the 
poet of this materialist, modernist world that rips itself apart. But Eliot, God love him, retained a belief in the human soul. But in 1927, he turned back to the Anglo-Catholic Church and rededicated his life to Christ after exploring the sadness and brokenness of the world of human relationship. And it's something to remember that the observation of woe, the observation of fragmentation, led perhaps the greatest observer of those fragmentations in the 20th century back to the deeper, older, and more solid things. This has been the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. If you want to find out more about the St. Constantine School and the things that are going on here and the blogs and podcasts we do, check out stconstantine.org. Thank you so much.